Juan? Yep. All right. Well, hey, well, good morning. Hey, it's great to see you guys. My name is Seth. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Salem. Uh, let me get this uh, booted up for me here. All right. Hey, well, let me start with, start with this uh, story. Um, I didn't start dating until my, uh, my senior year of college. And, and I think that was just in part for me because I just knew that I had a lot of maturing still to do. Uh, and so I, I waited. And, and I got to this point where I started looking and, uh, and I started searching and searching and searching and searching. And it just was always a struggle uh, for me. And then when I finished seminary, I, I went to uh, Madison, Wisconsin to fulfill my internship requirements. And, uh, and here in this, in this room, this internship room, uh, I met uh, a girl named Nikki. And, uh, and Nikki was wearing this um, outdoorsy headband. <laughs> um, and uh, when she talked, I listened. Like, it was just, I mean, like, it was like the Shekinah glory was kind of, like, around her. And it was this weird, like, oh, my gosh. Like, I, I really am intrigued by this person. And, uh, and so I, I started uh, to develop these feelings. And so I wanted to get to know her. And it was um, in, in this time where, so I was doing my internship with the college ministry. And she was doing an internship with the high school uh, ministry. Uh, and it was in this time where I thought, man, like, what's the best way for me? to get to know this girl. And it's all, usually the best way they say is like, is in a group, right? And so what did I do? So I decided to um, create uh, an intern hangout. Okay, and so, and I, and I divided all, I got all of these um, like schedules together. I talked to all of the other interns. I said, hey, when are you available? When are you available? Whenever you're available. And I collected all of this data and I put together this plan. Okay, and so I got everybody on board, and everybody was going to come, and so that was like my moment to pull the trigger with Nikki. And so I went to talk to Nikki, and I said, hey, Nikki, we're doing this intern hangout, and uh, we'd love for you to come. And she's like, man, that sounds awesome, but I'm out of town. I was like, no problem, we'll, we'll reschedule. <laughs> we'll just cancel it. We'll just, you know, we'll just, we'll just wait till you get back. And I think, you know, as, as retelling the story, Nikki, in that moment, was like, she knew, <laughs> Right? <laughs> And I thought I was being clever, and, you know, guys, we're just not as smart as we think that we are. Um, and, uh, and so, like, it was, you know, the gig was up. But um, so anyways, we rescheduled this intern hangout. And, uh, and Nikki was finally able to come, and we played this game uh, called Quelf. Has anybody heard of Quelf? It's the unpredictable card game. Some people love it. Um, students later bought it for me in the years because they thought that I love it. I really hate it. I, sec I, secretly, I secretly hated this game, uh, and here's why. Because in this, in this moment, like it's, it's called the unpredictable card game for a reason, okay? Um, and I got this card, and it's a timed card, and this is what I was supposed to do in this moment. And you got to remember, like everything about this internship hangout for me was to impress this girl, Nikki, in front of like everybody else, like to create this relationship. And, if, and by the way, everybody else was on board. They all knew what I was doing, <laughs> Right? They're like, go, go Seth, cheering on, root, root, root. Like, go Seth. Um, and then I get this card. And this is what the card says. It says, this is a timed card, so set the timer. You are a dancing, rhyming prison guard. It gets worse. You have no lips. Your knees are super glued together and you are covered in maple syrup and feathers, which makes me think of Home Alone, 
right? Like he gets covered in maple syrup and like the feathers blow on him, right? Blah, blah, blah. And then it says, you have until the timer runs out to sing to your opponents, keeping in mind while you're dancing and rhyming, sing to your opponents a song about how you ended up in this condition. I read that card, and the entire night was a, was a waste. I was like, I'm done. I'm hosed. Like, like I'm, I'm a ship in the water. Like, there's nothing that I can do to recover from this moment. And I tried. Like, literally, this card is, is almost everything that I'm not. Like, I, I, I am the worst dancer of all people. I have zero rhythm. Like, I try to rhyme, and, and I'll do, like, these little cute little stories with Eden, and it's, like, like just, like, five syllables, like, these, these small sentences, and I still can't do it. I'm like, and the, the, the uh, daddy's just not good at this. I'm sorry. Like, I can't rhyme. Like, so this is everything that I am not. And it was in that moment, I, I really, I was like, like, I'm done. Like, there's no recovering from this moment. And for me, like it really was, it felt like unredeemable. It felt, it felt like I was totally, totally hosed. And, and yet, we have these moments in our lives, like we all do, when things happen or something happens, what we feel is now so far outside of our control that it, it's unrecoverable. And sometimes we do that with our mouth, right? We say something. You know, like we say something verbally uh, or, or we tweet something or we put something on social media and it's like it feels good in the moment, but as soon as I hit enter and I see it like waft into cyberspace, I'm like, no, 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 no. Like I want it back. And, and it causes problems, right? We go, oh gosh, well, like that's unrecoverable. Um, maybe, um, maybe, like, well, like maybe if I think through our story, if I think through Nikki and I's story, the moment that, that we found out that having kids was going to be a hard moment was going to be a hard thing for us. Like, it felt unrecoverable. And it didn't change how Nikki and I felt with each other, but, but it changes our whole perspective about what family was going to look like, and it felt unredeemable. Like, God, what are you going to do to make this right? And maybe for some of us, we go, gosh, that's just 2020. Like, it just feels unrecoverable. It feels unredeemable. It's just, it's just it's too far gone. We, we've lost hope. We have very little joy. Um, God's mercy and his kindness um, seems to be pointed at like Neptune or, or some other planet, like not us, right? Like it just doesn't feel here. And yet we know in the back of our minds that nothing is impossible with God, right? God always seems to be doing the opposite. He wants to redeem, not neglect. That's who God is. Like, he is working out his plan in his time. And so, we've been walking through in this series, Simply Jesus, we've been unpacking kind of some of these different, these different themes, right? And the first one was the theme of hope. Um, and then we have joy and then mercy. And today, this theme that we're going to uh, unpack a little bit is the theme of redemption. And here's the deal. As I look, as I think through this word, I'm convicted in my own life that sometimes I read this word and I forget how incredibly powerful this word really is. And really what God is doing and what he's trying to accomplish in this word, redemption. And I just wonder, Seth, sometimes is my view of redemption just too small? Is my view of redemption just too small? And so today we're going to look at three different things. We're going to look at the, the largeness of God's redemption story. Uh, and then we're going to look at the depth of God's 
a redemption like forgiveness story, and then we're going to look at the goal, the goal of this redemption story. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to, to the book of Luke, the Gospel Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're going to be uh, in chapter 1, uh, verse uh, 67, okay? I just want to read it for us this morning. Here's what it says. It said, and his father Zechariah, this is after the, the birth of John the Baptist, it says his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our forefathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And this is where it shifts to talk about John the Baptist. And he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray this morning. Father, um, as we enter into this text, as we think about, would you give us the perspective to see things from, from the feet, from the shoes, from, from, the, from the very environment of Zacharias, to see, to, in some sense, to see what he would have seen and to experience what he would have experienced and that you would give us insight even into then how does that fit and work for us today who are 2,000 years removed. And so, Father, would you give us, uh, would you shed light, shine light into us and guide us into the way of peace this morning. Lord, we love you and you're going to be pray. Amen. Hey, well, we'll start in, in verse uh, 68, okay? Verse 68 says, uh, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Okay, let's just stop there for a moment, okay? Um, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Um, how many of you guys, I, I'm just convicted by this, how many of you, you start and you go, man, I, I need to talk to God this morning. What's the first word out of my mouth? I mean, I don't know what that is. I mean, for, for me, it changes, right? It depends on the day. It depends on the, the moment, the environment, whatever it is that I'm going through. But here's Zacharias, his first word is blessed, right? Like he's, he's marking praise upon this, this person, right? His God, Lord God of Israel, for he has visited. Okay, so this word visited, um, I, I love this word because when I think about this, for some reason, it, it creates this image in my mind of Christmas season greeting cards. Like, do you, do you guys get these in the mail where like you, like you get these updates from families and you look at it and you go, man, this is, these are so great. Like, I love this. Like, you get to see how the, the kids are growing. You get to read the updates and all of this stuff. And sometimes you have like, these little notes that will say, like, you know, like, hey, we can't wait to come visit. Um, and and so, so for me, like, I read these, I go, oh, that's nice. And it's easy, I think, for, for me to read this text and to go, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And for me to go, oh, that's nice. 
That's, that's good. Thanks. But the, here's, let's just stop for a second because this is so, 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 so much bigger than, than anything that we can actually uh, like wrestle with. Right? So like, this is the largeness of God's story that we're talking about here. Okay, so when we pick up when we pick up this Bible, we see this as really kind of two parts, don't we? But if you go all the way back, let me, let me just stop there for a second. If you go all the way back to, to Genesis 3, right? So you have old earth, uh, new earth arguments, but then you have, you know, Adam comes into the, into the world, right? And then you have this moment in time where everything seems to be good. And for all lack of, like, it's, it's kind of like this paradise moment, but it's not paradise in that they're just sitting there enjoying everything. Like, they're actually designed to work and to serve and to worship that way, like worship through serving. Like, that was part of life before sin actually entered into, uh, into uh, the world, right? But when sin does enter into the world, like this heart that is meant to be filled with the love of God, right? So, like, we're supposed to be filled over and over and over with this, this, this amazing God's love. And yet when sin enters in the world, this paradigm shift happens, and our heart becomes, like, broken and void and empty and it no longer fills with that. Instead, my heart, the one thing that it's good at is self-love. It's not about loving God, it's about loving myself. And so there's this paradigm shift that happens. So but when I look at this, and as I think through this, right, this story, this is one story. This is God's story. It's not a self-help book. This is the story about who God is and what he's doing, and this is key, to redeem his people. You see, ever since Genesis 3, it's not like that caught him off guard. He had a plan in store to help redeem his people. So our redemption story really goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And so if we think about this, we see it in two parts. Now, we, there's a lot to this, this book, right? 66 books uh, in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, right? 27 in the New. And so we look at this and we go, yeah, it's two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But for Zacharias, in this moment, he, we could just remove the New Testament, couldn't we? Because the New Testament's not even a thing yet, right? All he knows is the first part. And he wouldn't have seen it really even as like just one part. He would have saw it as a collection of stories over and over and over, this collection uh, of stories. And so here's what I want to do. I know I've done this uh, a little bit similar in the past, but I want us to help us see the largeness of God's story, okay? So if we were to take this cup, and we're going to go uh, and set this over here. This cup represents the time period from Adam to Abraham, okay? Now, before that, you have old earth, young earth, you know, and wherever you stand on that, that's okay, okay? But this time period from Adam to Abraham is around 2,000 years. So just, just to put this in perspective, that's about what we are removed from Jesus right now. So take that, you put that 2,000 years right here. You got Adam to Abraham, okay? Then we put this, this next cup, this next part in the story is like the forefathers, okay? That's Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, right? Jacob who would eventually become uh, Israel uh, because he would have 12 sons that, that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's about uh, maybe 300 years uh, or so, okay? And then we have this time of Moses, 
Now, Moses is the time of Egypt, uh, the time of the wandering and all that stuff, right? Um, and so, whoops, gosh, we don't know um, the full time that this would have taken, but let's assume that it's at least a couple hundred years, okay? And then you have this next story where they enter into the promised land, right? And they don't have kings. And so what does God do? He raises up these people called judges. And the judges rule um, over God's people, okay? And that's about 450 years or so. And then you have this next story, right, which is the kings, when, when Israel exists under the monarchy. And so you have, you know, what starts with Saul, and then David, and Solomon, and Rehoboam, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, right? This is about a 500-year chunk. 500 years. Now, we know that, you know, like, at one point, the Israel splits into two kingdoms. There's the north, and there's the south, and, and eventually, the northern kingdom is taken into exile, and then later on, the, the southern kingdom is taken into exile, but this is a 500-year chunk. And then you have this last story, and it's not talked about a lot, but it's just this kind of like what we call this time of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where, where God doesn't seem to be speaking in the same ways that he was throughout the course of history. And so when we look at this, we go, goodness, like it takes all of these cups to explain the story uh, of the Old Testament of what Zacharias would have looked at, okay? And so for us, when we flip through this, we see story after story. There's another story. There's another story. There's another story. There's another story. And we keep going, and we keep going, and we keep going. And what we don't realize is that by the time we get to Matthew 1.1, we've just flipped through about 4,000 years worth of history. 4,000 years worth of history. And here's the thing, what started back with Adam at the beginning in Genesis 3, right? Like that when sin entered into the world, here we are 4,000 years later, and guess what? A lot has happened, but really nothing has changed. You see, the story is going and going and going, and yet there's the, still this need for redemption. This is the largeness, really, of, of God's story. And so what God does is that throughout this time period, as a way to bring reminders to his people, is he establishes these things called covenants. Okay, and a covenant is basically this promise to say, this is who I am and this is what I am going to do. So he has this one, the first one is really with the guy named Abraham, right? So back over here in kind of this forefather stage. And this is kind of a strange thing. This is one of the first covenants in, in, the, in the Bible. And, uh, and God brings, brings Abraham, and what he does is he brings these animals, and, and, they, and they line up these, these animals along the side. So it's kind of like this aisle. So just imagine, like, animals along this side. And some people think that they actually cut the animals in half, and then they put them there, right? And so then what, what, what was supposed to happen was that Abraham would walk through in between these animals, and he would take this oath upon himself to say, God, this is my promise or my commitment to you. And what God does instead of having Abraham do that is that he causes this deep sleep to fall over Abraham. And so Abraham falls asleep, and in the midst of that, what God does in this really bizarre but yet really cool story with this like pot of fire like walks through the aisle. And so when Abraham wakes up, like all of this has taken place, and he's like, gosh, well, like what, this is already done. What happened? And God's point to, to Abraham is that this promise doesn't rest on you. This promise rests on me. This is my oath, my covenant, my promise to you. And guess what? I, I will fulfill that promise, and I, it might take 4,000 years to fulfill that promise. 
but I will fulfill that promise. And by the way, it's as if God's saying in this moment, if I don't fulfill this promise, then guess what? I am not God. 4,000 years. And we go, gosh, okay, so, so you have the Abrahamic covenant, then you have the Mosaic covenant, and then you have the Davidic covenant. So you have really these three main covenants uh, throughout this, this Old Testament story. But if you only have three covenants over the span of 4,000 years, that's not a lot of reminders, <laughs> is it? You're like, oh, gosh, like that's a, that was 1,000 years ago. Like we have a hard time grasping how long that really is, the largeness of God's story. Right? These covenants are interspersed throughout these, throughout these times. And so what does God do? Well, God raises up these prophets, which, by the way, you can see, actually, if I go to this, to see, because he talks about the covenants in here in verses 72 to 73. Um, and so he says, to show the mercy promised to our forefathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to Abraham, our father Abraham, um, and then he kind of goes on, and then we'll come back to that. But, but here's what I want you to do. Like, see, like, so Zacharias is over here somewhere, and he points all the way back thousands and thousands and thousands of years to say this is where it started, God's promise, his covenant with us. This is what he's doing. He's going to fulfill these things, okay? But over the course of 4,000 years, we need more reminders, don't we? We need more reminders than just three covenants. And so what does God do? Well, he raises up these prophets. Check this out in verse 70. Here's what it says. It says, he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets uh, from old. Now, this, let's pause for a second because when we hear the word prophet, we typically think prophecy. And when we think the word prophecy, we sometimes get confused, okay? So what is a prophet and a prophecy? Now, a prophet is, is first and foremost someone who is called by God, but second, a prophet is someone whose main responsibility Main responsibility, in fact, really like 98% of what a prophet's main thing was, was to call people back to God, which makes sense when you think about the length of the story. If this story is 4,000 years and there's only three covenants, what does God do? He raises up prophets, 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 who, who say over and over to these people, like, hey, hey, guys, that's not good. That's not good. That's really good. Keep that up. Keep doing that. But do stop doing that. Like, that's, 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 that's wrong. And so a prophet's main role is to call people back into relationship with God. But at the end of this 4,000 years, no matter the covenants, no matter the promise, or excuse me, the prophets, right, the world still exists in brokenness. A lot has happened, but very little has changed. The human heart, the condition of the human heart, what started in Genesis 3, is the same here and the same here. It's this reverse paradigm that the thing that I can do best in life is to self-love. That's who I am. And that's how I'm born, is to self-love myself, to fill myself with whatever it is that I want. And so throughout this, though, there are these prophets that, that God gives these, these special moments and special times the ability to speak into, via the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God, to speak into the future about a time and a person in which all of this is going to change. And it revolves around this key figure named the Messiah, 
In fact, 2%, roughly 2% of the Old Testament prophecy is related to Jesus. It's related to the Messiah. It points to it. It's not a ton of content, but it's there, and it's constantly moving the story forward, saying this might take longer than we thought, but there will come a time when all of this is solved, and it will be around uh, the Messiah. Now, I love this um, in, in, where is this, in, in verse 70. It says that he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. I love that the prophets there is plural and mouth is singular. You see that? Mouth is singular and prophets is plural. So it's really like this. It's like if we could in some way, shape, or form, if this were real, if we could bring all of the prophets who by God's power were able to speak into the future and to show us this glimpse of the Messiah, if we could gather them in a circle around sweet baby Jesus... And if we said, if they said, hey, could you point to the person that you're talking about, they would in unity point, 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 all the way around the circle. And it's not like you get to Malachi, he's like, nope, he's over there, you know? Like, no, 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 like all of them, point, 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 point. There is unity in these prophets that point towards this Messiah who we know is in the person of Jesus. Like this Jesus, this Messiah person, this this little baby that, that would have rested in a trough is the key component to God's redemption story. The key component, the key character in God's redemption plan. And Zacharias knows this, right? So when you look at verse 68, it says, when he says, like, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So he's thinking through this whole story going, gosh, 4,000 years worth of heart self-love. Guess what? The Messiah, when he enters into the story, he's going to redeem all of that. He's going to take care of all of that. He's going to redeem it because we know that nothing is impossible with God. It's no wonder that Zacharias starts with this word blessed, like praise be to God. Think about how big this story is, how big this story is, right? And yet Zacharias is in this moment, he's caught between two moments, right? He's looking behind him going, gosh, here's everything that God's done in the past, and here I am in the present, this, this God visiting his people moment, and yet there's this future that still awaits. God, what are you going to do in the future? What are you doing right now? Do you ever, um, this is a kind of a strange thing, and maybe this is just will show something weird about myself, but do you ever do this? Um, do you ever drive by somebody's house? Especially somebody, like, if you're driving in a town you're not familiar with or a city, you drive past and you look at it and you go, gosh, I wonder who lives there. Does anybody else do this? Okay, cool. Um, I drive, sometimes I drive by people's houses in a, in a not creepy way, okay? I drive people people's houses, and I go, I mean, I wonder who lives there. How old are they? What's their story? Like, they don't know me. I don't know them. They don't know my story. I don't know their story, right? And I think through that, and I go, gosh, what, this is a strange thing. I don't know why this always pops up, but I go, I wonder what their fifth Christmas was like. When they were a kid, when they were young, what was their Christmas like? What were their birthday parties like? What was the, what was, did they have a single mom? Did they have a single dad? Did they have a, a, a family together? Did they have a split family? Like, I think through these things, and I go, gosh, like, that helps me think and put myself into the shoes of other people. But it gets even, you know, you can go deeper than that, right? When you drive by, say you drive by a cemetery, and you see these, these tombstones, and I, and I think to myself, gosh, I wonder who that was. 
When did they live? How, how long was their story? Where did they live? What was their fifth Christmas like? How has the world changed since they lived? And I begin to process through all those things. And then I get to the idea even of archaeology, which I love. And then you start to dig up things, and you go, gosh, you find this pot. And you go, man, I wonder who owned this pot. Like, who was it and who used it? What was their story like? How was life different for them, right? And so we, we, we tend to look at these stories. I look at these stories, and I remember that at any given time, there is a past behind me. And for Zacharias, he is caught between two moments, the past and the future. But for him, he had the, 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 the rare blessing to sit in the moment where he could say, God is redeeming 4,000 years worth of that. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool for him to think about that and to go, gosh, look at all these stories, all these people that came before me, and yet here he sits in this moment and says, God visited his people, and he's bringing redemption. But by the way, God, what are you doing in the future? What happens next? I think the same question we can ask because we're in an entirely different moment, and yet we can say, God, what are you doing right now? What are you doing in this moment? Because I want to be a part of it. Whatever it is that you're doing right now, I want to be a part of it. So check this out. Let's move on in the text to the depth of God's redemption plan. The text tells us that this Messiah is going to do two things. The first one is in verse 71. It says that, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, in their context, that probably would have been the Romans. But when you think about the, sto the story, you've got the Canaanites, the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Gosh, the, the Egyptians, the, the Philistines, all of these, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, right? There's so many people. And so there's this hope that the, that the king, the future king, this Messiah, will save them from all of that and bring a political rule to the world. But it's much deeper than that. If you look in verse 77, here's the second thing that the Messiah is going to do, that he's going to give knowledge of salvation to his people. Now, if we go backwards a little bit, because you remember those covenants. You have the Abraham covenant, um, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. And then there's this guy named Jeremiah who exists in the prophets during those, the time of the kings. And he writes this about the future uh, in Jeremiah 31. Okay, here's what he says. Let's go to, there we go. Yep, Jeremiah 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. These next couple verses, here's what it says. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, what, what he's saying in this prophecy is that when the Messiah comes, like, like this heart that has been radically redesigned to self-love is actually going to be flipped back out, and this void and empty, gross, decrepit heart is going to be taken out, and God's going to give me a new heart, a heart of flesh, and he's going to start it pumping. The thump the thump. And it's in that moment that I will understand with, with radical transformation that, that how much I've missed in this life because I will exist in right relationship with God, right? It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, and then that's what's going to happen in this moment 
of redemption, when God visits his people and redeems his people. Okay, so this is kind of a fun little illustration. Um, I have here with me a uh, handy 25-pound bag of rice. Um, I don't know if you guys know um, who Jeff Bezos is. Jeff Bezos is the, is the, uh, is the owner um, of Amazon, okay? Amazon um, makes lots of money, <laughs> especially during this time of year. So I don't know if you've seen this. Um, somebody on YouTube decided that he wanted to calculate the net worth of Jeff Bezos in grains of rice. Okay, this is fun. Okay, so if, if you were to do that, you would need this bag plus another one and a third of one. So you'd need 2.3 bags of rice to talk about Jeff Bezos' um, net worth. And if we go, gosh, like, like that's a lot of money, even if this is a dollar or if it's $10. But here's what I need you to do. I need you to wrap your uh, imagination cap on for a moment. And I want you to pretend that this single grain of rice is $100,000. You would need 2.3 bags of this. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Like, like you, you look at this and, and you go, okay, so like I, I pull out like, like a small little, little pocket and I go right here. Okay, ready? Remember this 2.3 bags up here. I go, oh, that's a Lamborghini. That's a $10 million home. And you go, look at all this. It's, I mean, it's absolutely insane that he has $122 billion. And we go, gosh, I know that's a big number, but when I start to see, like, how massive that actually is in, in terms of grains of rice, I go, man, this is a big deal. And so when we talk about forgiveness of sins, what if we were to some way, there's no, there's no spiritual calculator where we can do this, right? We can't calculate, like, these into, like, amounts of sin, but if we were to some, some way, shape, or form, like I know this is weird, but put, again, put on your imagination cap and now assume that this one grain of rice just really has to do with the sin of, of people, right? And then I start to take these cups, this 4,000-year story, and what do I do? I fill them up, and I keep going, and I keep going. There's the time of the forefathers. And there's Adam to Abraham. And we start to think about that, and we go, gosh, those are full. And yet I know that there's still this bag and 1.3 other bags. Like, I can't conceptually grasp how much sin is in the world, how much Jesus had to take care of. And so we, we miss the largeness of God's story when we forget about all these 4,000 years and we miss the depth of God's story when, when we see sin too shallow. I think it's a powerful illustration for us. So we say what Jesus came to do, really, right, was to forgive sins. I don't have time to unpack it, but there's this passage in Luke, um, later on in Luke, where Jesus goes back to his hometown in Nazareth, uh, and he sits down and reads the scroll um, of people, and, uh, with people, and here's what he says. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, 
Um, and as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood to read. Uh, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolls the scroll and found the place where it was written. This next line. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor that Jesus is referencing here is the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is when every 50 years... On the Day of Atonement, they would announce this is the year of Jubilee, which means four things, that they would set all of the slaves free, all of the debts would be forgiven, the land would be followed, and, and all land that had been taken could be given back. And so Jesus stands in this moment and says, like, in me reading this right now, the prophecy is fulfilled. And but yet this year of Jubilee <laughs> is not just 50 years worth. It's, it's the jubilee of all jubilees. I came to take care of all of this. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And so Jesus, when he came, this is why Zechariah says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Let's start to wrap up here. Um, the goal of God's redemption plan, check out verses 74 and 75. Here's what he says. It says that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, right, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives, right? So when you go all the way back to creation, before sin entered into the world, mankind wasn't like just like sipping on coconut milk and just enjoying life. Like they were serving and worshiping God prior to sin. And so what he reminds us here is that the goal of redemption is not rest. Rest is a part of that, this eternal rest, but, but there's also this piece that, that the goal of redemption is actually to serve him, and it's clarified as to serve him without fear, to serve him without fear. So here's the deal. I, I want to end with these verses. I want us to consider these. Let's check out verses 78 and 79. I want you to consider these. This is what he says. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Here's what I want you to consider. Jesus is like a sunrise to someone who's been sitting in darkness. Jesus is like a sunrise to someone who has been sitting in darkness. This story is a story for us. As we look at this, we go, man, I know that I'm represented in, in the massive grossness that is humanity, and yet I know that this story is meant to be shared, right? It's bigger, it's bigger than me. And so um, in this, he says he points us towards the way of peace. And that's actually what we're going to talk about at Christmas Eve, just very briefly. We're going to talk about peace. But just let me read these last verses here. These, these are from uh, Isaiah 9. This is just quoted from Isaiah 9. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now check out this parallel here in John 5. One last one. This is the beginning, right? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I got an email this week from a, from a campus ministry, and it was really good. And the title was this, Revival is Happening. Revival 
is happening. And it shared these stories. And I just, as I read it, I thought, man, if revival is happening, I want to be a part of it. If revival is happening, like whatever God is doing right now, like I want to be a part of it. And I think it's, tr- it's true for me that sometimes my view of God's redemption is too small. And sometimes my view of God's redemption is too shallow. Right? Like, I need the right size view of God's redemption to understand not only how I benefit from it, but how it can benefit other people. Right? This is a story that is meant to be given to people. We are in an Advent season, which, which first and foremost is remembrance, to look back and say, gosh, here's everything that God has doing, right? But we are caught between two moments. We look back on what God has done, and we look forward in the future, and we say, God, what have you yet to do still? And this has been a long year but I believe that there's so much redemption that is still yet to happen. And so let's end with these, these questions. The first one is very, very simple. Like maybe you've never, ever received the forgiveness of sins. Maybe you just have never had that. Maybe you've thought for many years that you do have it, and you just are realizing, gosh, I don't. I don't have that. And so are you sitting in the dark? Because Jesus is like a sunrise to those who are sitting in the dark. And the second question this is how, how, this, this, how can this story be propelled? Who do you know that is sitting in the dark? Let's, let's close in, in prayer while the worship team comes up. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I come before you this moment, and, and I just, like, I just, as, as I think through the forgiveness of sins, Lord, I, I just pray, uh, Lord, that that would continue to touch my heart, that it would continue to touch our hearts, to know uh, how deep the Father's love is for us, that when you visit it, you accomplish redemption. You buy back, you redeem, you, you, you make sense of all that has been before us, and yet still all that is to come. And so, Lord, may this forgiveness just resonate in our hearts, that we go, man, like I'm beginning to sense and feel and understand just how deep this is within me and yet to know that, that when, when the Holy Spirit transforms me, the old has gone and the new has come. Lord, we praise you for that story. Lord, we rejoice in all that Jesus came to accomplish. And Lord, would you propel us forward into the people that you have given us influence with uh, who sit in darkness and who are waiting for this beautiful, beautiful sunrise. Amen.